If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. Hello, Paul Hayward and Glenn Murray here with the official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast, the show that takes you behind the scenes at your football club. They say sports and politics shouldn't mix, but they always have and they always will. We talk to the leader of Brighton Hove Council, Bella Sankey, about football's vital role in the community grassroots sports and learning to swim at the King Alfred and Paul's personal push for a new Falmer train station. That's my dream, Glenn. I want Falmer station to look more like King's Cross than it currently does. <laughs> Bella, first question. As council leader in Brian and Hove, the, the, the club is now a ma- not a major part of your political brief, but it's a major part of the, the fabric of the city. So, so you have to have a good relationship with the club, don't you? I think that's right. But I think more importantly, we want to have a good relationship with the club. We recognise just how vitally important the club is, not just for our residents. You know, when I go door knocking across the city, the one thing that unites the people in Port Slade with the people in Saltadine is they have flagpoles in the back garden with, with, with one of the football club's flags stuck on it. So it's important for the city. It's important for our economy. I mean, it's absolutely central to everything that our city now is and is about. Uh, so we want to have a good relationship. And we think that by partnering with the club, you know, both the council and the club can be, you know, better and better. And there's a visibility factor, isn't there, externally, so that the club, the club is drawing interest to the, to the city. What benefit does that have to, you know, people living their everyday lives in the city, do you think? So I think there's the employment benefits that the club brings. I think it's fantastic that the club is a living wage employer and is employing more and more people into its operation. Obviously, as the club looks at expansion plans, that will only grow. Then there's obviously the visitors that come, both from across the country and now increasingly internationally. And I think that is incredibly exciting and something that we want to recognise. We know that people right over the world have a growing affection for Brighton and Hove. And, and that's fantastic. I'm so proud as a Brightonian to know that and, 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 and the feeling that that gives me. And I know that means a lot to our residents. But I think the economic impact of the club is really stark. 
when we came to help launch the economic impact report a couple of weeks back, I remember someone mentioning to me that right at the start, when we were looking to build the stadium here, it was projected that the club would bring in, you know, just over 20 million. And now we're looking at over, over 600 million a year. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And what that does for our economy, you know, we're not a massive city. Uh, we really rely on tourism and visitor interest. So the contribution that the, that the club makes cannot be uh, overstated in my view. Just on the economic forum, what numbers really stood out to you in that? Because there was a lot of numbers floating out and they were all very impressive. But which one for you was the, the one where you were like, wow, I didn't expect that? Uh, I think it has to be the overall economic impact that, that over 600 million. I mean, that is that is absolutely incredible. As I say, the club is not, uh, sorry, the city is not a huge city. Uh, I think our, our, I mean, we've got various kind of small scale industries and enterprises going on here, but we don't have huge industry. You know, we're not like a big port city and tourism is so important to us. It makes up about a quarter of our economy. So it's absolutely crucial, the contribution that the club now makes to that. I was going to ask you about that because we're we're talking at the Amex and it's it's a cathedral in a in a multi billion pound industry, but of course Brighton and Hove has social challenges, political challenges, doesn't it? I mean, could you paint a portrait for us of the, of the life of the city and what the challenges are for you as council leader? Oh yeah, absolutely. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, All day. <laughs> so what I would say, uh, as somebody who was born and raised in Brighton and Hove, a lot of our big challenges are really stubborn challenges that have existed in this city for a long time. And, and what I would say is we've not made the progress that I think we should have made on those challenges over time. So in particular, I'm looking at stark inequality in the city. You know, we're in the southeast. Brighton Hove has a certain reputation. And I think there can be this idea that we are just, a, you know, a well-off city and that everyone in Brighton Hove is doing all right. And the reality is that we have some of the most deprived wards in the whole country. Uh, there is really stark inequality. And with the cost of living crisis being what it is, I know from door knocking right across our city, thousands of doors, there are people in the city feeling real, real pain at the moment. So that's something that I want us to address. I think that that inequality has remained quite stubborn despite, you know, governments and administrations of different shades. But that's something that we want to tackle. And there's there's big educational inequality in the city. And that's something that we're looking to get a grip of as well. And, you know, we need to do this against the backdrop of Brighton and Hove being geographically quite limited. We've got the sea on one side, the South Downs on the other. There's only so much space. Housing is increasingly difficult to get hold of. We've lost a lot of properties. I think about 4,000 properties to short lets and Airbnbs, people having their second homes here. And what that means is um, over the long term, people that grow up here can't make a life here. And that's the thing that we really want to address. On top of that, I'll, I'll just say lastly, in Brighton Hove, we've had 20 years of no overall political control at the local level. And I think that that means we've stagnated as a city and things have drifted. No political party has been able to come in and, and stamp their vision and their strategy on the city. And that means that I think when it comes to basic services, the look and feel of the city, it's not where we want to be. That's another big challenge that we want to get to grips with. It's funny that because you mentioned that Brightonians can't build a life in Brighton. And I, I actually think that with the football club sometimes because... It's so saturated from, and I'm one of them, <laughs> people have moved to the city and it just squeezes others out. I mean, obviously I've got loads of friends in the city now and, and when they're looking to get on the property lad, I mean, property down here, is, it's just crazy. And like you say, you're stuck between the motorway and the sea and it's just at such a premium that they have to move further and further and further out to make that change from, from being uh, young and single to, to starting a family. 
Yeah, I think I think it's true, and it needs quite radical action to address it. So my view is we need a Labour government that will give us the levers and the mechanisms and the powers to really scale up house building in the way that we want to. And there are other things we can do that I think will make an impact. So we're already looking at a new scheme of landlord licensing to drive up the quality of properties in in the private rental sector. We're also launching VIEW to see if rental market intervention would make an impact in Brighton and Hove and to understand what that impact would be. And we're also looking at something called a principal residence policy, which would mean that any new builds being built and sold in the city would need to go to people that are making Brighton their main home rather than a second home. And some other coastal towns and cities have, have looked at that as well to, to try and deal with that issue. A lot of people listening to this, Bella, will know about um, grassroots sport in this city and have experiences of, you know, all the stuff that we used to call municipal sport when we were growing up. And it's no secret that that's fallen away. The first thing to go often with a local authority budget is grassroots sport, isn't it? Because it's regarded as low priority in our kind of national culture and the private sector stepped in to take a lot of it over. But when you look at Brighton and Hope, do you think that municipal sport is strong? Do you think there is sport for all? Do you think people on maybe lower incomes have, have got access to, to council-run sport in the way that they used to? And is that is that on your list of priorities? So I think that what we've tried to do as a Labour administration consistently when we've been in power is to try and preserve and maintain and, where possible, try and expand that access. So, for example, under-18s in Brighton and Hove can swim for free. We fully recognise, I think you're right to say that the impulse is often you know, what? what is it we have to deliver and, the, and then the nice-to-haves get cut away. I think one thing we recognise is that the nice-to-haves are, are actually, in terms of the quality of people's lives and their ability to maintain their well-being, are actually crucial. And so you need to try and maintain and preserve um, budgets in those areas. Local authorities now have public health grants, um, which used to go to the NHS and now come to us. And I think we've been quite innovative in Brighton and Hove in trying to connect health to leisure and sport and, and see and see that link and to try and channel those funds in, in that direction. But I think it's absolutely fair to say that particularly in, in, in parts of our leisure and sports offer, it's not where it should be. So I've got a strong emotional attachment to the King Alfred. It's where I learned to swim. And I know that a lot of our residents do, but I think any any objective observer will tell you that, you know, it's, it's, it's past its sell-by date and we really need a new high-quality uh, leisure offer in the city. That's something that we're now looking to deliver. There's been a couple of failed attempts. So, um, so you know, we're behind schedule but that's something that our administration is really determined to get to grips with and to, to deliver in a realistic way over the next few years. So, so I think there's areas we can improve. But there's, you know, there's other things happening. Look at sea lanes and how and how brilliant that is. And I know they've got some provision there to try and make it more accessible for low income families. But there's still obviously a lot, a lot further and a lot more we need to do. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You really are 
of Brightonian. I mean, you went. I think you went to Blatchington Mill, didn't you? And you went and worked in human rights and equalities. I think you went to Cambridge University. What was it that drew you back to the city? Why did you want to play such an important role in this? A lot of people that grow up in Brighton and Hove are absolutely obsessed with the place. <laughs> and I'm one of them. Um, and actually, I remember you saying, Glenn, when we had the launch of the economic impact report, that you fell in love with the city. And and I think that is that is so easy to do. Um, I get quite emotional talking about Brighton and Hove. I think it is an incredibly unique and special place. And a lot of people that do move away for a bit come back because it draws you back. I, I, I really believe it's one of the most um, incredible places to live in the UK. It's got everything and it's and so much is accessible from here. And it's just got a certain type of ethos. You know, I think that actually the ethos that the club has developed really matches the city. I think, you know, the two things are very intertwined. I think that's the secret to our success. <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's just the it's just a magical place and and somewhere that I really want to commit, you know, my my life and my career to. Talking of coming back to the city uh, the women's team is coming back to the city from Crawley at some point. What role can the council play in assisting that process? So that's something that I know that everyone at the council wants to really lean into. We're incredibly proud of what the men's team has achieved, particularly since getting their own stadium here at Falmer. And I believe that the sky's the limit for the women's team as well. I went and saw them play at Broadfield last Sunday against Arsenal and I was really impressed with the flair, with the team spirit and stamina of the team. It wasn't the scoreline that we wanted, but I don't think it really fairly reflected the match. I feel very passionately as a woman that women's sport in this country has been held back, you know, over history. Um, really unfairly. And I think it's now a duty on all of us to try and level that playing field, which is why I think it's so important that the women's team come back to Brighton and Hove. And I think it's really exciting that the club is looking at trying to build, you know, their own purpose-built stadium. I think that could be a real trailblazing move. The club have already started that, haven't they? The, the training ground, the women have got their own facilities and, and they're amazing. Um, when you went to Crawley at the weekend, did it fill you with... I suppose, anticipation when it was full and you seen the buzz around the place and, and how amazing it would be to bring it back to the to the city. Yeah, absolutely. Like over 4,000 people, it was packed out. Uh, parking was a nightmare. <laughs> um, you know, it's just... Don't, don't get us onto parking on the pod. <laughs> oh, you, you might regret that. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, but clearly, uh, uh, you know, in my view, they, they've now outgrown that stadium. But I think you're right to talk about the buzz. I thought that was... Um, Incredible. It was really inspiring to see so many people there, so many people that have obviously made the journey. It's not the easiest place, you know, to get to um, for Brighton and Hove residents. So so that was inspiring. And yeah, absolutely. I'm full of anticipation for what this move could do and for the way that the, the team support could grow. Did you feel as though, obviously, you, you visit the Amex for men's games, you went up to Crawley. Did you feel as though it was a different clientele? Um, I... I I'm not sure, you know. I think I think there's obviously going to be people that are particularly committed to the to the women's game and that and that follow that. But I think there's potential for, you know, people that are big supporters of the men's game to get more invested in the women's game if it's, you know, brought brought back home here. I mean, you know, 
if you go back to the 1920s, you had crowds of over 50,000 watching women play football. And, you know, one of the theories is that the reason it got banned is because it was more popular than the men's. <laughs> um, you know, watching women play football, I think, is incredible. Uh, I think it's incredibly watchable. You know, it's a, di- it's a different sort of game, but it's got its own sort of magnetism. So I really believe that the sky's the limit and we shouldn't sort of set limits on it. We should really you so know, think about the potential. So what capacity does the, the new stadium need to be? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I'm not here to get into, <laughs> to get into the particulars. Obviously, that's something for, for the club to determine. But yeah, my view would be, you know, think quite ambitiously because look at what's happened at Falmer in a relatively short space of time yeah. um, and, and the crowds that are now being drawn here. Were you around when the when the club was having quite a struggle to get this stadium built? I mean, you you might have been at what university or something then? Do you remember those days when the club was homeless and there was a big battle over building this stadium, which not everybody politically in the city was in favour of? Uh, it's remarkable to think now, isn't it, that that, that that was a that was a battle. I mean, look yeah. at it now. It is, as I said earlier, it's a cathedral, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember um, I remember the difficult days in the nineties, in particular really well, you know, front page of the Argus every day, um, pitch invasions, campaigns. Um, you know, we did our athletics at with Dean. So to then have the club playing there was, uh, was, you know, obviously an interesting episode. I think you're right to identify that, you know, that struggle. I think that, you know, out of that adversity, something amazing has been created. I, I particularly would pay tribute actually to a former Labour leader, Steve Bassam, yes. who I think understood the importance of the club to the city and to the residents and also the potential that the club had, you know, putting the issue of the stadium on the ballot in the referendum in, in 99, I think was a masterstroke, um, got us all tied into it. And then obviously, you know, it was a Labour government that ultimately granted that planning permission. So, you know, I would say that, that the party has always been on the side of the club and now it's very easy to be, isn't it? But I think it is important that politicians understand the importance of, of sport to this city and, and really try and invest in it. And sometimes that means making brave decisions. Yeah, because football's partly about social mobility, or I should say that football is is helpful to social mobility, isn't it, in all sorts of ways. People don't understand that about sport, that it has this social function, doesn't it? It gets people up the ladder. It helps them through life, doesn't it, in, in all sorts of ways? Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. I think it's important for social mobility. I think it's also incredibly important for mental health. I think it's really important for community cohesion, you know, difficult times that we're in, um, events that are outside our control, international events. Football can be uh, one of the things that really brings people together, binds people together. It's a massive leveller as well. And, you know, it, it's somewhere where, you know, if you've, if you've got the hard work and the dedication and obviously a bit of a sprinkling of talent, you can go so far. And, and, and having, um, you know, local players, you know, spearheading the team, I think really does something for kids in the city in terms of that, you know, idea of, you know, role modelling and, 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 and thinking what's possible. Yeah, there's definitely a clear pathway for, for both boys and girls now in the city to to think I can play for Brighton Hope, I'm going to represent their local city, which I think when I first joined the club probably wasn't a big wish of a lot of the children. But now, I mean, just the amount of football shirts you see on the streets and people proud of their city and, and, their, and their sports club. My, yeah. ch- my children went to um, Dorothy Stringer and across the playing field was Vandy and where Lewis Dunk went and Des Lynham, actually. Um, <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, used to, I used to say to them, you know, oh, Lewis Dunk went to Vandy and across the road to me. And, and the, both those schools, it had an incredible effect on them to think that 
you know, you could play for Brighton, you could play for England, yeah. uh, you know, starting out in a, in, a, in a state school. I know that sounds old-fashioned, but it actually is very powerful still, isn't it, that, 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 that Lewis Dunk is the symbol of mm. football in Brighton and Hove, and he's a local lad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing more powerful and sort of more transformative. And, you know, as somebody who's in my role, always trying to find those levers and those ways to try and level the playing field and to support aspiration and to try and ensure that, you know, it doesn't matter what your postcode is and what your start in life was, you can go wherever you want to. Nothing can sort of compensate for, for, for what the club is now doing in terms of that energy, that vision and that aspiration for our kids, it's something we, we absolutely celebrate. It's still our job to try and, you know, pull the levers that, that we can. But those two things can work hand in hand, I think. We should ask you about the potential for a fan zone at this stadium. I mean, I, when I go around the grounds and you would, Glenn, you'd see these the football stadiums are kind of spreading out to create a kind of match day experience, aren't they? And people are turning up three hours before the game and listening to music and, you know, and meeting their friends. Do you, do you see the Amex going in that direction, potentially? <laughs> the fan zone's currently subject to planning applications, so I, <laughs> I have to be slightly careful what I say. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think what I can say, sort of generally speaking, is I see the way that this club has kind of grown and responded to what fans and residents are wanting the club to do. And I really celebrate that. I think that in terms of our sort of transport infrastructure and ensuring that people can get to and then ultimately leave on match days as kind of smoothly uh, as possible and, and have the best experience possible, I can completely see, you know, the benefit and, and the kind of plan there. And, and I think that's great. Well, you've just touched on one of my obsessions there, uh, the, the Southern Rail and, that, and, the, and, the, st- and the, st- the station across the road, Falmer, which... You know, the stewards are brilliant and, and the club does its absolute utmost to get people here in a way, but sometimes that's not reciprocated by Southern Rail, I would argue. Um, would you like to see a nice modern new stadium, out, a transit station out there to serve the stadium properly? Absolutely. Don't get me started on the, on the railways. Um, they need to be brought back into public ownership. I, I agree. Um, and, we need, and we need much more investment. Um, you know, we had a real struggle actually earlier this year on the day of Pride in the city because all the trains yeah, were cancelled, you know, right across the region. I think it's unacceptable for a city to be cut off like that. Um, and I know that there have been issues at times on, on match days as well. So, yeah, I think we do need much more investment. I, need, I think we need a much more reliable train service to serve the city. Mm. Monorail, tram system, maybe out to the ground. You never know, do you? That's what they would do in Germany, probably, but keep, keep pushing for it. Um, thank you for joining us, brother. That was fascinating. Really good to get an insight into the, you know, the wider city and out that the football club serves and is part of. So thanks for coming along. Thank, thank you. you. So we've got a Christmas special and a review of the year coming up. Uh, what were your best moments from a stellar 2023. Glenn, any suggestions? Oh, it certainly has been a huge year for the football club. I think the obvious one is qualifying for Europe, but I'm going to go back to the drawing board on that and we'll, we'll speak about it in the next pod. Well, I'm going to nominate Pascal Gross being called up for Germany. But what were your special moments from 2023? Tell us at podcast at brightonandhovealbion.com. You'll find the email address in the show notes and don't forget to tell us your name and where you're from. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. This podcast is a VoiceWorks sport production for Brighton and Hove Albion.
Sports Social Podcast Network.